I'm Jonathan Mosen. Welcome to episode 104 of Mosen at Large, the show that's got the blind community talking. Today I'm talking with Shadi Brisbane, author of iOS Access for All, which is now out in its iOS 14 edition. We'll talk about the book, her career, and of course, plenty of Apple things. Mosen at Large Podcast. I like to think of it as the war and peace of iOS accessibility, only far more enthralling, of course. Shelley Brisbane has written an updated version of her iOS Access for All book, including features introduced in iOS 14. There's plenty of interest for blind and low vision iPhone and iPad users, but it also covers Apple's vast array of accessibility features for people with a wide range of disabilities. And Shelley joins me now. It's really good to reciprocate and have you on my podcast, Shelley. So welcome. Thank you. It's great to be here. And it was certainly great having you on my show parallel a few weeks back. And uh, the war and peace, I'm going to have to keep that because that's a a good testimonial to put on the website somewhere. Phew, I mean, it's quite immense, and we'll talk about that a bit later, but you've enjoyed a long career in journalism, particularly in the tech space. Has your vision deteriorated over time? Not really. Um, I, it's funny because I use screens so much more than I ever did back when I was you know, working exclusively in, in print, and so I don't think my vision has deteriorated, but I think the way I use it is different because of I'm, because I'm using screens so much, and my guess is that that's the way most people with vision of a certain age might might look at it. But uh, no, it's, it's stayed the same. I was born with a blockage of the optic nerve and very nearsighted and photophobic. And uh, that continues to this day. So do you use your technology primarily as a low vision user with magnification or as a, a blind person with screen reading? Mostly as a low vision user, especially when I'm trying to work or manipulate things on screen. If I'm reading, if I want to read a long article or a book, and I do like long-form reading, I will always kick into speech. And in fact, I prefer that. And I, I sort of, that's that's my default, the way my brain works. I want to hear it. But I use what vision I have with magnification and with high contrast video on screens most of the time. I think it's so important that blind people, low vision people, actually people with a range of disabilities are involved in journalism. I'm involved in my day job as chief executive of an employment agency for disabled people here in New Zealand. And I'm so keen to see more of this because it's such a position of influence and it can change mindsets and and perceptions. Did you come across much discrimination throughout your journalist career? It's the sort of thing that you don't always know until after it's happened. And then you look back and you wonder why did something happen a certain way? And then you you don't want to think it's because of your disability. But sometimes in retrospect, you go, oh, that probably was. Or people, what what's happened to me more than anything is that people made assumptions about what I couldn't do without letting me get involved and say, hey, I can do that. Or here's an alternative way I could do that. And so that's the kind of, like I say, that's the kind of thing where after the fact, you become aware that that somebody was ignorant and substituted their own judgment for yours when they were trying to decide whether to work with you or not. Yeah, it's such a frustrating thing, isn't it? So often we're not so much limited by the disability, but other people's perceptions of it. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that especially in the early days when I was really committed to working in a mainstream environment, I did as little to draw attention to my disability as I possibly could. And having some vision, I had a fair bit of success with that. And I am more uh, able and willing to speak to my disability, whether it's answering people's questions or whether it's being forthright in my own right and saying, hey, this is something, accommodation I need, or this is something you should be aware of, than I would have been back in the day. And the irony of that, of course, is now I'm working much more in accessibility-related journalism than I was before, even though I'm continuing to do mainstream stuff. But back back in, when I got started, I was very much out to prove myself and to you know, say, I'm fine, I'm fine, I've got this. In many cases, that was absolutely true. In other cases, I probably, had I known a little bit more, would have been a better advocate for myself. 
Your willingness to take on accessibility work, was that a bit of a progression for you? Because I know that there are people who don't want to be pigeonholed and disabled people in any space really are worried about covering disability because they fear that they'll never get out, you know, that, that that's what they'll be pigeonholed for. Yeah, absolutely. As I say, I was very, very committed to working in the mainstream. And once I found that technology was the niche where I wanted to be, I was First of all, I don't know that in the late 80s when I started, there would have been a lot in the mainstream world for me to do as somebody who was focusing on accessibility and disability, even though I was sort of hacking it in my own personal life. But as a young person and as somebody who was very committed to being in the mainstream and frankly, who had seen a lot of my peers feel like they had to settle for careers in accessibility and disability, it's not what I wanted for myself. And and a combination of age and the fact that I was successful in the mainstream world made it more possible for me later in life to go into accessibility and to sort of combine the two. And so I feel like I'm I'm fortunate in that regard. And I wouldn't necessarily advise a young person to take either the path that I did or the opposite. It kind of has to be what that person feels like is best for them and whether it's more important to be successful and recognized in a mainstream context or whether it's more important for you to advocate for yourself and to write about what you know, which is accessibility and disability. We had a really interesting discussion on your podcast, Parallel, about the way that mainstream tech news covers disability issues and there's kind of a human interest angle almost a inspiration porn angle a touchy-feely angle that doesn't really reflect the fact that actually disabled people are consumers who have rights and who should expect the technology to work in the way that uh, it, it said it would when they purchased it is that something that troubles you the the angle that is often taken on assistive tech It really does, especially because the part of technology journalism that I've always been interested in was the how-to and the uh, evaluation of features based on their relative merits. I mean, I started writing in technology comparing products, comparing accelerators and hard drives and the sort of thing where you had charts and where you would say, well, this is X percent better than this other thing. And then when I started looking at the way the mainstream covered accessibility, it was all in terms of feel good and all in in terms of... you. You could tell that the people who were doing most of the writing had never used the products and didn't understand whether something was actually more or less effective than the other product and that they really didn't care. And that is still the case, even among people who I know well and who I've advocated with about accessibility tools and who I've pointed to my own work and others' work and said, hey, this is good, this is mediocre, this is less good, and you should address these kinds of features in the same way that you would address whether a smart assistant is good or whether a robot vacuum is good. And I'm still having trouble making that case, and it's, it's really disappointing. What's the solution? Is, is the solution to have more disabled people involved in the mainstream tech press, or is, is there an education component, perhaps a bit of both? Perhaps a bit of both. I do think that it's important for folks in the mainstream who are not folk who are not knowledgeable about accessibility to do one of two things, either to get knowledgeable or to involve people that are knowledgeable, either as the primary creators of content or as technical editors. I've had technical editors work with me on content for many years. If I was writing about something on which I was not the expert, it was often standard practice for me to send my copy to a technical editor who might know more about networking or web development or something than I did. And he or she would say, here's where you're going wrong. Here's where you need a little bit more detail. And that's a role people with disabilities could play uh, as far as the accessibility components of mainstream products, particularly where you have an operating system or you have a tool that has some relevance to accessibility, or when your question is, is that product accessible? Maybe the person with a disability writes the main story, or maybe that person is the technical editor. There's no reason they can't do either of those jobs. What was the first Apple product you used? I had a Mac 512 KE. I didn't own it. I actually rented it uh, back in 1985. <laughs> Gosh, so you go way back with the Mac. I, I do. I. Uh, it was funny because even though the Mac then and now was a very visual platform, the reason that I gravitated toward it was because it was – a a, a WYSIWYG platform. In other words, it had a screen where you could lay out pages, do desktop publishing, and have it look the way it would look 
on a, a light board with galleys, which was the way that was done back in those days. And so for me, as a person with low vision, I could use an app like PageMaker and I could drag columns of text into the right place on the pasteboard. And that was far easier for me to do without making something crooked or breaking something or using an X-Acto knife in the wrong place than it would have been on a layout table. So even though I was using my vision, I was using the Mac as an accessibility tool. And of course, the irony is that there were no specific accessibility tools on the Mac at that time. Yeah. Well, half a world away, I was using an Apple product then too, but it was the Apple 2E with the old Echo 2 speech synthesizer. I know oh, a lot gosh. of people who use that, who use the Apple 2. And that's a funny thing. I had no awareness of the Apple 2 other than it existed, but I had never used one. <laughs> uh, great days and those old games and uh, good stuff. Now, I want to talk about the book, of course, iOS Access for All. This is a huge undertaking because the subject matter is very broad and it's a constantly moving target as well because Apple keeps adding new features every year. What inspired you to take on such a, what I would think is a tough ongoing task? Well, I didn't know how ongoing it would be when I started it. (laughs) I uh, have written technology books in the mainstream for a very long time. And when I started this, when I got the idea to do this in 2012, it was getting to the point where it was really hard to publish a technology book anymore, both because of the electronic publishing revolution where Kindle books were sold for so little money and just because so much of technology was becoming more friendly to consumers. And so I couldn't do what I used to do and every year or so go to a publisher and say, I have an idea for a book. Let me write about something, some tech app or some operating system. Just the opportunities weren't there. And so I was looking for a way to occupy my time and and, and obviously keep the, the bread on the table and that sort of thing. And I had never written about accessibility with the exception of one article for Macworld probably about 10 years before that. And just in casting around for what to do, I took a look at what resources were available about iPhone, iOS accessibility, because I had gotten an iPhone two years after it came out when voiceover became a part of the iPhone because I finally could use the thing. So I certainly knew about iOS accessibility and use it in my own life. And I decided to go and look around on the web and see what I could find. And I found that there were very few resources that were being kept up to date, but that there were resources out there. I don't remember if your book was out there at that time or not, but there were a few. Mm, Um, Yeah, not till 2013 was my first edition. But those resources not only were old, but they were only addressing voiceover. And I I probably Mm. went comprehensive. First of all, because I was a person with low vision and I was like, wait, nobody's explaining how the various kinds of zoom work. Nobody's addressing how you can increase the contrast on your screen or how and when you might want to use bold text or larger text. And so once I had that done, I was like, well, there's nobody discussing hearing impairment either or motor disability or guided access. And so it sort of snowballed from there. And I decided that my brand was going to be the comprehensive guide to accessibility and not just the guide to voiceover, which would leave a little room for others who maybe still were going to write about voiceover in different ways. <laughs> but yeah. uh, that, you know, and I, I ended up doing one edition for each version of the operating system from iOS 7 forward. And as I say, I didn't know quite how all consuming it would be when I started it, but it's been a fun journey. And I, it's, it's a lot of work, though. <laughs> Yeah, I'm sure it is. And the fact that you identified that gap in the market, does that suggest that Apple's dropped the ball a bit with its own documentation? Yes. Uh, and it's it's funny because I think their accessibility documentation has improved. When I started writing the books, accessibility was literally an appendix in the back of the book, and there were very few pages. Their documentation still isn't great because it's it's incomplete. They sort of point at most of the features, but they don't really describe how one uses them. And I, I'm sure, and I haven't really evaluated it in depth, but I'm sure that's a, a something that all of Apple's documentation suffers from because they know most people aren't going to read it. They, you know, who, who actually pick, cracks open an iPad manual when they get an iPad? Not many people. However, though, I think it's important if you're going to create something as rich as voiceover or Braille support with a variety of gestures that make that work and keyboard shortcuts that make that work, 
it's really important that you document those fully, and they don't. And I do my best to, but there is no source from which I can draw all of the keyboard shortcuts and all of the voiceover gestures and all the Braille commands uh, until iOS 13 when we got voiceover commands. So you at least had a list of the gestures and the commands that iOS recognized in the operating system, which is not the easiest thing in the world to pull out. But before then, you were just going off of old Apple lists that weren't updated and lists that other people had compiled and, and hoping that you didn't miss any. Yeah, and I think the big difference with the disability market is that you can't really say that it just works. You do have a level of training and understanding that's required to make use of these products. And I think that that really obligates um, Apple to, to try a little harder in documenting what they've done. Yeah, I would at least like the reference to be more complete. I think that there's a, and I've discovered this, I didn't really know it when I started writing it, but I do think that there's a style of communication in writing about accessibility that perhaps requires a little more detailed explanation. It's not that people mm. are any less smart, it's that they aren't necessarily as familiar with the paradigms and they don't necessarily have the visual cues that a person with, with full vision would have. And so... There is sort of both an expectation and a need that's born of the kinds of features that are part of this system to provide more detailed explanations. And I'm happy if Apple's not going to do that to write to that market and to try and write in a conversational and encouraging way to people. I would be happy if they would just focus uh, on providing a complete reference to, for example, all the commands that VoiceOver supports, that Braille supports, on the switch control side, which is even poor, more poorly documented than VoiceOver. What are all the ways you can integrate switches? I've gotten more great information about how to use switch control from a vendor that produces a, a an annual sort of guide to their uh, switches and applications than, uh, for, than anything I've ever read from Apple, which is really unfortunate. And frankly, it makes me feel like I'm probably missing a few things. And one of the things that's interesting, too, about iOS is that Apple doesn't come out with a document that says, look, here's what's new. Here's what we've changed in voiceover in this version of iOS, which was, of course, the niche that I was filling when I was producing my books. But it, it's a mad scramble, isn't it? Because without official documentation, you're essentially experimenting. You work with people you trust. And you're kind of trying, it's like finding little buried treasure. Every so often you find another little nugget that you think, oh, I'll have to document this. Right. Well, I, there, I used to, when I got the betas early in the summer cycle, I used to just document, start writing from the betas. And then I realized yeah. Apple is quite free to add, delete, and worst of all, move things around. So that when you say, go to settings, accessibility, voiceover, blah, 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 it's, it's entirely likely that it'll be renamed and moved. That isn't even about features. That's just about we can do it because it's our software. As far as features, <laughs> I, I don't do that anymore. So that's that's the, why the books, unfortunately, can't come out the, the day iOS is available, which is a goal a lot of people have, but I've just given up on that. I'd, I'd rather it be complete. And so yeah. I'm working with the betas, but I'm never finished until the released software is out. And so you, you find yourself, yeah, as you say, doing a lot of experimenting. I find myself reading everything I can get about such and such a new feature. And then I have a whole change log document because if I write about it one place, I have a whole new section, a whole section that's about what's new. And I have to make sure that if I wrote about it in the voiceover chapter that I actually address it in the what's new chapter. So I have this complicated change log that has links to where I found information. And it's just... There's a lot of, uh, you know, pulling threads and, and putting things together at the very end of the process. You think you're almost done with a book and then you have to go back and cross-reference everything. And yeah, Apple will give you, and the accessibility page isn't any more helpful because they're, they're not focused on what's new. They're focused on what exists, which is a combination of what's new and what already exists. And so I don't blame them for that necessarily. I, I mean, and you can look at release notes from developer betas and that sort of thing, but still you're going to miss things. And they do hide nuggets an awful lot, both in accessibility and in the mainstream world. And then there are also, uh, when you go out there reading uh, web articles about what's new in Apple, people have particular focuses and interests that aren't really mine, and people will go on and on about toolbars. And I'm like, well, yeah, but from a voiceover perspective, is it any different than it was before? <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly right. And actually Actually, that's what inspired me to do the first um, iOS without the iBook was because there was such a huge aesthetic change going on with iOS 7. 
and it suddenly occurred to me, well, what does this really mean for a voiceover user? What do you do as a geek? Uh, I have to ask the question, how do you compose this book? What tools are you using? It's ridiculous. Uh, <laughs> so the the book is fundamentally an EPUB book, and I made that decision because EPUB is as accessible as it possibly can be. Not only can you read it in apps like a Books or any number of accessible EPUB readers on Windows or any platform you choose, in terms of making it, it's very accessible because without getting too nerdy for people, all an EPUB is is a collection of XHTML files and in link and images with links all linked together, and yeah. you can make books like that with graphically focused software. Allegedly, you can make it make an EPUB with pages, although not a complicated one like I make and be happy about it. And so I actually use a combination of a text editor and some scripts I have that will uh, combine the EPUB. It zips it up into a file. It zips it up into a zip archive. But before it does that, it verifies that it's a valid EPUB. It checks all the links. It makes sure that the chapters are all in the what's called the manifest, that the images are all you know, kosher in the manifest and, oh, figure 7.1 is a JPEG, but you called it a PNG. Ah, ah, ah. Well, here's the error log. You better go (laughs) fix it. And the only way for me to do that and feel good about it, and as I say, it's a highly hands-on manual process, is to use a text editor. I use BB Edit, which I know is not voiceover accessible, and that's annoying because it's a delightful uh, developer-oriented tool on the Mac. And there's a great tool that is voiceover accessible called Textastic on iOS. And so sometimes when I'm writing on the iPad, I'll write in Textastic. And I'm happy to live in HTML. XHTML is the same thing. And then I use a series of series shortcuts to turn the screenshots from HEIC format on iOS into the JPEGs of the size that I need and to send them to the right place in files and iCloud Drive. So that's been really helpful to have. And then at the end, I have to make PDFs because a lot of my customers really would like a PDF version of the book. And I I would say to blind listeners out there, if you think that you need a PDF, uh, learn a little bit more about EPUB because I think you'll actually be happier if you're using an accessible EPUB because not only are there no unintentional, inaccessible areas in the in the document, but uh, all of the contents is completely, the links always work. You don't have to worry about thumbnails. You're always able to use a text table of contents effectively. And in my case, I can use the nice large fonts that I created the book in. It's a font called Futura. And uh, sometimes when I convert over to PDF, it doesn't always translate the way I want to. So my, my method of, I don't know if you want all this detail, but my method of turn, making a PDF, which is I discovered last year is I take uh, the BB edit file, which is an XHTML file. I open it up in a tool called Marked, which gives me a visual appearance, a visual reference. It's, it's like a browser, but it's not really a web browser. Marked will then save a chapter file as a docx file. And then I combine all my docx files, add the images back and convert that from Word to PDF after I verified its accessibility and added alt text and all that sort of stuff. So it's extremely convoluted. And it's why a week after I introduce the EPUB version and I'm really excited and I think I'm done. I'm still working on the PDF version and people are writing to me saying, where's the PDF? <laughs> right. Well, you you officially get like 12 out of 10 for a gloriously geeky answer to that question. So. <laughs> so you didn't even know what you asked when you asked me that question. I did a whole podcast series, which was I realized after I had done it that the entire purpose of the podcast series was complaining about having to make PDFs. But... <laughs> Have you ever looked at Ulysses as a potential way to do all of this? Well, I Ulysses, I, I've actually used, tried Scrivener, and I have some the way the way Scrivener hemage, handles images doesn't work for me. I don't know if Ulysses would work any better. I suppose mm. I could pony up the money and try it. Uh, my 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 friends who have worked with Scrivener gave me some some good advice, but it still didn't work for me. And I I haven't I haven't really dug into Ulysses, but I yeah. love the idea that it's on both iOS and macOS because I end up writing all over the place. I'm writing at home. I'm right well before before COVID, I was writing in coffee shops. 
apps. So I love the idea that wherever I am, whatever device I have in front of me, I can write. And I know Ulysses is on both platforms and, you know, comes highly recommended by people who have used it. I just am not one of them yet. It's equally accessible on both. And you can use Markdown to embed images and it, it yep. exports EPUB and creates PDF. And having now just purchased an M1 Mac, uh, I can say it works just as well on Mac as it does on iOS. So there you go. It's, um, it's worth a try. Now, yeah, there you go. Who is the book intended for? Because you've got such a broad subject matter here. Uh, are you predominantly looking at, at trainers for this? Honestly, I'm I'm trying to cover the whole waterfront. And I, I have had a lot of interest from teachers and from trainers. I'm also hoping that the reason that the book is organized the way it is, which is with so many chapters and so many sections, is that you can use it as a reference. Like if you're an experienced user, there's a lot in the voiceover chapter that you don't need because it's very basic. But you can use the reference to go straight to voiceover commands or Braille support or whatever section you're interested in. But if you're a beginning user and you want to read through the book is designed to give you that through line, or at least in each individual chapter gives you a through line. So when you start reading the voiceover chapter, you're going to be told a story. You're going to be told to do how to how to do things in the order that makes sense. Uh, just as an example, uh, used to in the voiceover chapter, I started with how to install, how to configure uh, your iPhone with voiceover alone, which makes perfect sense, right? Well, the trouble is mm. that most people don't, if they're beginners, they don't know the voiceover gestures yet. So I have to stop and teach you enough voiceover gestures to enter your Wi-Fi password and swipe to get next and so on. And so I, I reoriented the book a little bit so that when people start, and they're especially if they're beginners and they're feeling some trepidation about it, I, I am going to hold their hand through it. I'm going to say these are the most basic gestures, the gestures that you can get most easily. And then when we get into text editing where the, the uh, waves are a little bit higher, I'm going to hold your hand a little tighter and I'm going to tell you you're, you're fine. You're, you figured out standard typing. Now you're in direct touch typing. Now you know what we're going to do. We're going to move some words around. We're going to correct our spelling. And there's a way in which that could sound a little bit condescending and it's not meant to be. But I've had so many beginning users or so many users who have only used voiceover at a high level say to me that they appreciate that level of detail. And again, if you're somebody who doesn't need that, there are entire section of the book, sections of the book, which you are free to skip and it won't hurt my feelings. Right, because obviously if you're a blind person who doesn't have any other impairments, you may not be interested in sections on hearing and yes. motor issues. That too. Um, and although, but like I say, even within the sections that might interest you as a blind person, you might not read – the voiceover chapter is quite long – you might not read all of it. You might spend more time using the back half of that chapter or the chapter that covers new things in voiceover and then go directly to the appendices, which have all the keyboard commands and gesture references, that sort of thing. It's interesting how some of these accessibility features kind of cross-pollinate, though. You've done a really good job of documenting voice control, which I, for one, love. I actually use it Sometimes when I'm getting ready in the morning and I don't have time to hold the phone or I'm on the treadmill and just want to do a whole lot of things, it's an incredibly effective tool, isn't it? I like voice control a lot. And I think even though in iOS 13, Apple did uh, – they had it on the main stage at the Worldwide Developers Conference, as they should have, I still think it was under – appreciated both in our community, especially in our community, because it was really intended to be a feature for people with motor disabilities who couldn't necessarily touch their phone, but in our community as well as the mainstream community, because it's just an amazing feature. And as a 1.0 feature, I think it's one of Apple's real hits as far as working well and, and doing what it needs to do. I really like it. And to be honest, I don't use it enough. I there, There's so much going on in iOS that I a lot of times feel like I probably could be getting more out of my devices than I am. It is a shame, though. One of the things that's changed, and I'm not sure what the rationale was, was that when voice control started off, you used to be able to say swipe left or swipe right, and it would perform the voiceover function. And now you have to say, I think it's voiceover select previous item, which is much more convoluted than swipe left and swipe right. Yeah, that's annoying. So I kind of, yeah, I went off it for a while, but I've just had to come to terms with it because there are so many benefits. I mean, you can even, as you really well document in your book, 
You can even um, do some quite major editing of text as you compose, which is what really makes it stand out from working with standard dictation. Yeah, actually, that was one of the most fun things I had learned when I was doing the iOS 13 edition of the book, especially, was that I, I read up on what it could do, and then I was a little skeptical as to whether it worked. And it would work, and I sat down with my iPad, and I started working on the text editing features with voice control. And it really works well, and it really works fast. And I also think it's intuitive, with the exception of the example you cited about the, the voiceover compound command. You know, if you're just editing text, the things you say to get it to do what you want it to do are very intuitive and they make sense. And as I say, it's very fast. And I, I would have expected that it would have been somewhat pokey. And it's not. So your book is structured in a way that has different disability types in each section, right? And then you kind of go on once you've educated people on the functions and how they work to more general concepts that would apply to the entire audience that is reading. Yeah, I want people, first of all, to sort of find their place, whether it's blindness, low vision, hearing impairment, wherever you come from as a person with an accessibility need, I want you to get your grounding. And then when I explain concepts later that apply to everybody, you can apply what you've already learned, whether it's about voiceover or low vision or, or whatever. And I still continue to give you voiceover centric guidance as, as we're going through all of the sort of mainstream features like how to do screen work screen time or privacy and security or any of those features I talk about in that giant chapter seven. And it, it was a difficult decision to figure out how to cause that structure. I, I think I added the chapters where I talk about more general system level features later on because I was finding that there was no way I could get all of that information into chapters that were specific to a disability. And there were just too many, there were too many tips and too many little ideas that I wanted to get across to people that weren't related to a specific disability. I didn't want to have people, you know, go to chapter three, there's a great tip in there. And so I needed to find a way for everybody. And and that's the thing too, those chapters can be read by anybody, whether their accessibility need is constant or whether they're just reading along. Maybe they're an iOS user who has somebody in their life with accessibility needs. Um, so yeah, I, I'm, I'm happy. I feel freed by those chapters, the system level chapter and the iPad OS specific chapter, because I feel like I can talk very expansively about all of those features without being constrained by okay, oh, we're only talking to an audience that's going to use it with voiceover. So in the iPad OS chapter, there's a lot of visual stuff because there are a lot of things that one can do both with and without vision on the iPad, but there are a lot of things about the iPad interface that are oriented toward a visual experience. And I, I don't think a, a blind person is going to be uh, wasting their time if they read a chapter that also includes information about how a visual interface works. And then you took on the brave task of recommending a range of apps. And when I read that chapter, I was really struck. I thought, you know, isn't it incredible that in the days of, say, Windows Mobile or Nokia phones, we would be struggling, we would be asking the community, is there an accessible app that does this? And now, in most categories, we're spoiled for choice. We ask the question, what particular accessible app would you recommend in this space? Because there are so many. I wanted to highlight accessible apps because we needed we need them. We, everybody is going to use apps on their phone and you don't want to waste your money or your time downloading something that isn't accessible. But I also wanted to give kudos to apps that had done a great job. And there's so many apps in, in, who have uh, been embraced by the community, so many developers of things like Twitterific and Overcast and other apps that a lot of people use, but that especially in the accessibility community, people have come to understand those developers are always looking out for the interests of voiceover users. A lot of them have voiceover users in their beta program. Some of them don't. But I I just I just wanted a place for those kinds of apps to shine and I I think actually I wish I had time to put more apps in the book and I've tried a couple times to sort of crowdsource some more apps I've gotten on Twitter and said to people hey what apps do you recommend but I I actually would like to give sort of more time and energy to that because the original concept of that chapter was that I would have people write little reviews or say here's here's my favorite app and you know check it out and you may or may not like it, but it's an app that I find useful and that it's, you know, completely accessible. So maybe at some point I'll, I'll find a way to get back to the crowdsourcing. 
And it speaks to the fact that Apple has done an incredible job of building this community of app developers. And I usually find that it's the smaller, perhaps one-person shops who are really keen to make their apps accessible and who feel very proud, and justifiably so, of the work that they've put into making their apps accessible. Well, the funny thing about that is I identify with those developers as a podcaster because, and you probably know this too, that sometimes you do a lot of work and you don't get any feedback on it. You don't hear, <laughs> hey, am I doing a good job? Am, are, you, are you getting anything out of it? And I know from talking to some of those small developers that when they get a voiceover user writing to say, this app is so awesome, this app is accessible, uh, and it's it meets my needs, here's a little suggestion for some way you could change it. The developer often takes that as, oh, my God, not only do people love my app, but people with a disability are taking time to write to me when they have choices of other apps. And they're saying, I like what you're doing. Here's some information that you might not know about how to do it better. Right back in the introduction of your book at the beginning, you make the comment that the iPhone has replaced many of the devices that blind people used to have to carry around and potentially lose and have to charge and all those things. And for me and you, that's certainly true. It's interesting, though, that on this podcast, we've had discussions where listeners have talked about how despite owning an iPhone, they're still going to use devices like the Victorita Stream or something that's blindness specific. What do you think the reason is for that? I think some people have those devices and they have a comfort level. I get a, I get readers all the time asking me, can they read the book on the Victor Reader stream? And the answer is absolutely yes. The answer is not get an iPhone, silly. Uh, the answer is if that's the way you <laughs> want to read it, feel free. And I, I feel like some of it is a comfort level. Uh, for some people, not all, but for some people, it has represented a significant investment, both financially and in terms of their time and, and learning and getting comfortable with the device. And they want to keep it for as long as they can. I think there are probably some people who are finding ways to transition. And, and they may you know, there's an inertia thing. Like I, you, you, you know people in your life who do a certain thing a certain way because that's the way they do it. And even if you say to them, you know, you could probably get rid of the stream and you could read everything on an iPhone or you probably don't need that handheld electronic magnifier. They have trouble sort of processing that. They're not they're they're used to doing a thing the way they're used to doing it. As far as people who are acquiring, you know, new devices, I think there is probably a little bit of mistrust out there because there's there's this way in which people think, you know, Apple could just decide to pull the plug on voiceover at any moment, but I know the Victor Reader stream is always going to read to me because it's designed for my specific needs. And uh, you know, and I and I, as I say, I think um, things like electronic magnifiers. There are ways in which devices are specifically oriented toward a low vision or a blind user's needs. So the magnifier example, uh, you may have a particular color combination and color filters that is appealing to you. And up until recently, the iPhone didn't actually offer that many. But with iOS 14, you've got more color filters and magnifiers. So there may be more people who feel like that app, which was underdeveloped, has come to a point where it's going to meet their needs. But if you spent $1,500 on your favorite handheld magnifier, it, you, it may take you a little while before you decide to switch completely over to an iPhone. I certainly hear what you're saying about that fear of Apple pulling the plug. People do express concern from time to time about the quality control issues, certainly where voiceover is concerned. And of course, the NFB famously passed a resolution on that subject a mm -hmm. few years ago. And it's a topic that comes up regularly on this show as well. And so there is this concern that if blind people appear to be too ungrateful and rock the boat too much, then Apple is going to punish us by just walking away. What are your thoughts on the degree to which accessibility quality control is an issue at Apple? And how do we balance our gratitude with our rights as consumers to have products that do what they say on the tin? It is an issue, and it's an issue in ways that are surprising when they come up. So it's not that accessibility quality is a general problem. It's that in a specific instance, something happens that you absolutely don't expect. And so as a user, you're confused by that and you're not sure how to trace it down. Is it because, as is so often the case, somebody just didn't think about that, that by flipping this switch, this other thing has been caused to break? And that's 
the source, a part of the source of people's concern. The other source of people's concern is, frankly, Apple's uh, unwillingness to speak candidly and publicly more about what they do. They certainly engage end users in a variety of ways in developing their products, whether it be through employing them or getting them involved in beta programs. I know that stuff goes on behind the scenes. I know they do focus groups. I know Apple engages people. But most people don't have exposure to that. Most people don't have the opportunity to directly influence the way Apple produces a product. And more to the point, they don't hear Apple talking about the product's roadmap the way some other tech companies have finally understood that they ought to do. And so I think Apple's keeping things as close to the vest as they do in general has is is something that follows along to accessibility and that's unfortunate and i suspect and i don't know i haven't had this conversation but i suspect that if i were able to have a candid conversation with people on the accessibility team at apple they would probably agree with that because apple's cultural tone of of silence and unwillingness to engage their customers more directly is not something that's decided by the accessibility team. Should that let them let them off the hook? No, absolutely not. But it's worth figuring out how to aim our fire when we are concerned about something. And as you have done quite eloquently, it's worth being very specific and very direct about a situation where a product or a feature has stopped working or has broken in such a way that it that it doesn't work for some percentage of the population. And if we don't do that, and if we don't sort of pick our battles and when it's appropriate, get on our high horses and, and yell and scream about things, they won't get fixed. And by the same token, if we complain too much, if we're, you know, perceived to be uh, not focusing our, our, our anger or our uh, frustration or our positive feedback, depending on your point of view, uh, then I think sadly we get listened to less. And yet there is this enormous backlash, isn't there? Even when people do very reasonably and methodically seek to point out these issues in an attempt to be constructive. Yes. Yeah, there is. And and I think, again, that goes back to uh, why my concern about the way the mainstream tech press has, has covered accessibility, because if they were less attached to their notions of the connection between accessibility and social good, it would be easier to place an item about how a certain accessibility feature has stopped working or how one feature's uh, changes have affected accessibility in a negative way. But because we're not able to go beyond our own sources of information, like your podcast, like the work I do, like what people do on Twitter who are specifically focused on accessibility, because there's so little interest in the mainstream outlets where uh, Apple folks congregate and where Apple employees and, and executives read, uh, we don't necessarily have the push that we otherwise would. And I, I think those things are connected in, in unfortunate ways. I'm curious about what consumer law is like in the United States, because certainly here in New Zealand, there's legislation called the Consumer Guarantees Act. And that says that when you buy a product, a consumer has every right to expect it to do what it says on the tin. Is there similar law in the US? Well, this is where I say I'm not a lawyer. Um, right. <laughs> another yeah. issue is... Another issue is that a lot of those kinds of laws are at the state level, uh, right. and there have there have been efforts on state and federal levels to create a right to repair legislation, which is as close as we're getting to sort of tech consumer law. Uh, as far as whether you have to be absolutely truthful in your advertising as to how well a feature works, that's certainly subject to litigation, but... Uh, I, I, I'm a little out of my depth, but I will say that the biggest constraint on understanding how such a law might protect a person who feels that they, a feature has been advertised in a way that isn't true is that there are 50 states and 50 sets of laws. And frankly, there's a segment of uh, government at all levels that likes it that way because it means that people don't have rights that are easily understandable or that they can track across different states of the United States. Now, that said, reading in such detail as I have been in your book about all of the accessibility features that Apple's rolled out that they've put into iOS, it really reminds you how remarkable it is. They have set a very high bar, and I think it's forced the rest of the industry to respond. 
it has. When we look at a Microsoft or a Google or an Amazon where they've added considerable accessibility features or they've made them much smarter over time, you absolutely see Apple's footprints there because, first of all, they've been able to follow the ways and means that, that Apple's used to provide accessibility and said, oh, this is what people want. Well, let's make something like that. They also have legal compliance issues from terms of education and in terms of employment. They want to be on those contracts as Apple does, which is which is how you know Apple got into accessibility in the modern era in the first place. But what's really interesting to me now and what I think is really exciting, and we've seen this with Apple, Microsoft, and Google, is that as they've actually been adding capabilities in their hardware and software, things like machine learning, they're finding new ways to add accessibility and not just, oh, let's make this mainstream feature accessible, but let's make a feature that is specifically designed for users with accessibility needs. And I don't think that would have happened a few years ago because the level of understanding that there was an accessibility community out here that was willing and able and interested to buy their products uh, I think it was a lot lower. And now that the baseline for all of those companies, Apple, Microsoft, and Google, in terms of providing accessible hardware and software exists, people within their company, whether it's in sort of some sort of skunk work project or whether it's in the machine learning lab or wherever, are thinking creatively about, hey, here are some features that we can add that are specifically oriented toward an accessibility need, as I say, as opposed to just papering over things that were otherwise inaccessible. Yes, and we should celebrate that progress. I was on the fence about getting an iPhone 12, actually, and then decided to because I thought, well, maybe some third parties will do some interesting things with LiDAR. And actually, Apple beat them all to the punch with a specific accessibility feature really as a proof of concept, I think, the people detection feature. I mean, that is amazing that that happened. It is amazing that that happened. And it was funny because Apple promoted the heck out of it with, with a lot of people in the accessibility press. But because they were Apple, they sort of had trouble even explaining how awesome a feature it was. They sort of pointed, yeah. pointed us at it and were like, look at this thing that it does. And the literal thing that people detection does, it also happens to have come out during the pandemic. So they have a little serendipity going for them. Literal thing mm. it does is tell you whether there's a person in your environment and how far away that person is, which has an absolute usefulness to it. But all by itself, it doesn't seem like something that would motivate one to have like a big press conference. But I think what Apple was saying and what we should infer from it is that LiDAR gives them the ability to do so much for an accessibility application. You start with people detection, you start in the phone, whether you end up in a wearable device, whether you end up in a more sophisticated application on the phone, you give people with blindness the ability to know more about their surroundings than they otherwise would. And that's amazing. Yeah, it is. I was quite surprised by how much sort of derision it generated on social media, actually. I think it's because, like I say, it was that sort of weird ham-handed combination of Apple going, look at this amazing thing we did, but not being able to explain why it was amazing. And I tried my best to sort of take the long view. I mean, I have, there, there's, there's you, you put, to, to forgive the expression, but you, you get blinders on, you see a feature, and yeah. you, you try to evaluate it as just the feature. Oh, I can tell that there's a person 10 feet in front of me. That's really great. But <laughs> if you think about it just in those terms, the way that Apple promoted it sort of makes it look silly. But if you think about it in terms of, as I say, the, the two things that are exciting about it are what it says about, the way Apple is thinking about LiDAR and the the uh, modeling it's doing for third-party developers as well. And the other thing is that when they decided to create this thing called people detection, they said, this is a feature that is specifically aimed at a group of people, people with blindness and low vision. We didn't invent it for the mainstream and say, oh, here's a way a blind person can use it. We said, here's an application that we have, Magnifier. Let's put this people detection feature inside of it to give added functionality, to use a favorite tech company buzzword, to people with blindness and low vision. And that's the difference between just making an improvement to voiceover and adding a feature that is specifically designed to enhance 
quality of life, productivity, whatever you will. And and that gets back to what we were talking about earlier with regard to purpose-built accessibility devices. So when the uh, when people were wearing backpacks uh, with laptops in them that had GPS d- uh, devices and and uh, and you know carrying around all this incredibly heavy equipment that was specifically designed for what they needed to do as blind people, all of those devices were designed for the needs of a blind person. And what mainstream devices allowed us to do was do stuff that the people in the mainstream world were doing in our own way, but they didn't give us back all of the blindness-specific features that we wanted. We are, Our needs in terms of navigation are very different than somebody who's driving a car. Well, that's what those third-party apps, uh, the mapping apps that have come out since the iPhone was released have enabled us to do. Hey, let's create an app that's specific to the need. Let's create Blind Square. Let's create Seeing AI. Let's create apps that are specific to the needs of people with blindness. Well, what Apple did with people detection is say, let's us do that too. Let's create a feature that's specific to the needs of blindness. They do that with voiceover recognition, in, in which is also in iOS 14. It got a lot less fanfare because it didn't use the LiDAR sensor, but it is in its own way just as amazing. Yes, one day we may wake up and find that Apple has acquired someone or something that we know. (laughs) (laughs) I hope it's not you or me. (laughs) Uh, No, I think them acquiring me is highly unlikely. Apple has acquired Jonathan. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. That was the vision I had. It's just like Apple comes in and says, hi, we'd like you to be one of us, one of us, you know. (laughs) Right. Right. Head, head hunting time. Right. What is the best way to get hold of iOS Access for All? If you go to my website, which is iosaccessbook.com, you can buy it, the book in EPUB or PDF version, or you can buy the surprisingly popular combo version, which will give you a zip file that includes both of those versions. You can also buy it from the Apple Bookstore if that's more convenient for you. That brings a little less revenue my way, but it's entirely your choice. What's the price on the book? It's $25 US for the EPUB or the PDF version. For $30, you get the combo version. Super cool. And tell me about Parallel for those who aren't tuned into it, subscribed to it already. Well, first of all, you should so that you can hear a really great end-of-year conversation between myself, Jonathan, (laughs) and Jason Snell. Uh, It actually was a a great episode, and I really appreciate your coming on. But, But Parallel, the conceit of the show is that I bring folks from the mainstream and accessibility communities together to talk about technology. We talk about accessibility as part of the conversation, but it doesn't dominate the conversation. It goes back to everything I've talked about earlier, about my passion for people communicating together, even though they find themselves in uh, different worlds most of the time. And you can find that at relay.fm slash parallel. And you can just search, I guess, for Parallel in any podcast app, right? That's true. Parallel, not plural, just parallel. It's not the parallel and it's not parallels. It's parallel. Uh, and you can find it wherever your your, your podcasts are served. Uh, it is a Relay FM podcast, part of that network. So you'll hear uh, myself along with a bunch of, uh, of uh, Relay people there as well. Well, it has been a blast talking with you. The time has flown by. Thank you for all the work you put into this book. And I appreciate you coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me, Jonathan. It was a blast. I really enjoyed it. Be the first to know what's coming in the next episode of Mosin at Large. Opt in to the Mosin media list and receive a brief email on what's coming so you can get your contribution in ahead of the show. You can stop receiving emails anytime. To join, send a blank email to media-subscribe at mosin.org. That's media-subscribe at M-O-S-E-N dot org. Stay in the know with Mosin at Large. To contribute to Mosin at Large, you can email Jonathan, that's J-O-N-A-T-H-A-N, at mushroomfm.com by writing something down or attaching an audio file. Or you can call our listener line. It's a U.S. number, 864-60-MOSIN. That's 864-606-6736. Mosin at Large.